today. So let's get into it. Uh, on a serious note, good morning. Um, I've got a few quotes out of some of these books. We're not going through all of them together, don't worry. Uh, this morning we're going to be uh, taking a look together at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there and be uh, prepared for that when we hit into that. So as most of you know, many of you know, if you uh, are around me any or have social media, uh, recently Sheila and I uh, got a puppy, and her name is Belle, and she is the cutest puppy ever. So if you have a puppy, it's cute too, I'm sure, but not as cute as Belle. And uh, Belle, um, this week we took her in to uh, be fixed, so we don't have any more puppies later. Um, and so we took her to uh, a clinic and uh, had, had them do whatever kind of work they do. I like not to think about it too much. Just send her back to me when she's finished. <laughs> and so um, I arrived uh, in the morning to pick her up the day she was ready uh, at 7.30. And I checked in with the vet who had taken care of her and asked, you know, what have you guys done with her this morning? And they said, we've gotten her, we walked her a little bit. She's used the bathroom, had breakfast, you know, the normal kinds of things. And so I figured, okay, well, she'll be good to go. We'll put her in the car, bring her home. I'll uh, walk her again and then, you know, put her in her pen. And she has to rest for a few days to kind of make sure everything's healed up. So I picked up Belle and uh, carried her to the car because I was sweet and gentle with her and laid her in the seat. Uh, and she, she was excited, you know, but she uh, was responsive to being carried. So I set her down in the seat. And I'd got around in, in my seat, put my seatbelt on, and I looked over, and Belle had peed all over the seat. So if you ride with me ever, the seat is clean, so don't worry about that. But she peed all over the seat. And it was funny watching her, because after she did that, she doesn't like to be in the floorboard. Uh, she sometimes likes to be in the back seat. But she was walking around the pee. You know, she didn't want to get in the pee. She'd put her paw in it, then she'd put some more on the seat. She'd pull her paw back. She'd be upset about it. She was a little fussy. She didn't want to be in the pee. And if you didn't plan on hearing about pee this morning, sorry about that, but that's the story. <laughs> so whatever the case, um, I was laughing at her because I was thinking to myself, you're upset about the mess you made. You're the one who peed in the seat, and you don't want to walk in the pee you put on the seat. She made her own mess. Of course, she's a puppy, so... Well, I couldn't reason with her about it, but whatever, whatever was going on, she was upset about uh, peeing in her seat. This morning, I want us to take a snapshot of our responsibility to disciple our families. And why I bring up the story of Belle is to say that, like Belle's dirty seat, our culture is messy. And part of the reason has to do with how we've engaged with the world around us, across generations. Now, I don't speak specifically to anybody in this room necessarily, and if you find conviction this morning, then praise God and respond to that. But when we look out at our world around us, it's messy, and we fuss about it. We're upset. We want to know why things are the way they are, why worldviews that we don't like are advanced in our country and our globe, and part of the reason has to do with some of the mess that we have made ourselves, either intentionally or unintentionally, and the ways we haven't engaged with culture well to impact it for the gospel. 
Now again, my prerogative this morning isn't about guilt, it's about action. And I hope through this good word that we find some sense of how to respond to the needs of our age beyond just complaining and fussing about what's happening out in our world. This week I was uh, taking a look at some references of things that speak to the messy nature of our culture. You may have heard recently that the founder of Playboy magazine, Hugh Hefner, had passed away. And he was on a Time magazine cover. And his Time magazine cover was essentially highlighting his life, giving him some kind of recognition. And in our culture, his name may carry certain connotations, may not for you, but whatever the case, they were revering this person who had died. And then a few weeks later, there was a magazine cover that was trashing another man, Harvey Weinstein, who has been accused of some inappropriate conduct towards women in his career. And this was also on Time magazine, which is really shocking, because the culture one man had perpetuated, which was sexual liberation, the very next week, the culture was criticizing another who had taken part in that same culture. A strange contrast. And whatever your viewpoint is on these two men, my desire today isn't to lambast or uphold. It's to say the culture's confused. There's a confusing standard in our world. I saw a quote uh, from the founder, I mean, excuse me, the uh, president of uh, Planned Parenthood this week. Now, if you know about Planned Parenthood, one of their avenues by which they engage with our culture is uh, through uh, women's health issues as well as offering abortions. And this president of Planned Parenthood said that every life has value. And they said that in reference to immigrants. They were talking about the issues that we're facing in our country with immigration. Again, an inconsistent message. On one token, a message that life has value, but it just depends on the life and what the circumstances are. Now again, my prerogative today isn't to tear apart that organization or whatever your viewpoints are on those challenging social issues, but to say this. The message is confused. The culture is confused. And it's messy. And we don't live in some bubble here that's not impacted by that. If you sit down with some of the students that I have the blessing of educating in our youth ministry, you'll find that they are directly impacted by these worldviews. If you sit down with some of our young adults, people my age, you'll find that they are directly impacted by some of these worldviews that are inconsistent with what the text says. If you sit down with middle-aged adults, you'll find they are directly impacted by some of these worldviews. If you sit down with older adults, you'll find that they are directly impacted by some of these worldviews. The church does its best to provide answers to those challenging questions. But we know that the beginning and end of impacting our culture in such a way that those messages are no longer confused, a clarity is brought to the church, to the household, to the family, and to the nation, begins with the household. Starts with parents. Starts with grandparents, aunts and uncles. And instilling principles of a biblical nature beyond just moral ideas into the lives of our children, our spouses, our parents, and so on. Some say that we have lost a generation or two to what it means to disciple your children at home in the good word of God. And not just moral values, but ideas birthed out of the text. And again, if that's you today, if you feel like you haven't taken hold of your responsibility, the prerogative isn't guilt. It's what do we do next? How do we take hold of that? 
And it's pretty unequivocal to say that that's the case, because we now see our culture full of questionable ideas, questionable morals, questionable values. And that has been birthed out of the work of the enemy and also some of the challenges of our responsibility to raise our families in a way that honors the Lord. But we are in good order this day because our God who is rich in grace and mercy has not left us without clarity. We find in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, information about how to engage with the realities of the challenges in our day. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, I'm reading from the King James, The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they, they shall be as front, frontlet excuse me, between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And I want to read this again in the Living Bible, which says this, O Israel, listen, Jehovah is our God, Jehovah alone. You must love him with all your heart, soul, and might, and you must think constantly about these commandments I am giving you today. You must teach them to your children and talk about them when you are at home or out on a walk, at bedtime and the first thing in the morning. Tie them on your finger, wear them on your forehead, and write them on the doorstep of your house, the doorpost of your house. So whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in this day, we are given a call to action here. This moment, if we recognize our need to impact our families and our culture, is a benchmark statement to say, whatever's happened in the past, we are here. I tend not to look at the challenges and shortcomings of a previous time, a previous people, a previous organization, and say, well, look at all this mess. What do these people do wrong? Why do they make these mistakes? Instead, we need to look at those things and say, what can we do better now? What next steps can we take to improve these realities? And that goes across generations. So if you look at your world today and you're my age and you think, well, our parents didn't teach us well enough and grandpa didn't do this, this, and this, get that thinking out of your head because we've got to move forward. And if you're from an older generation, you're like, look at them millennials doing all that stuff out there. Get that out of your head. That's no help. Let's move forward. What we're trying to do as a community of believers is not to reflect on the shortcomings and sin. We know sin's back there. It's not news. What we're trying to do is figure out how to honor the Lord in the next steps of our day, individually, collectively, as a family, and as a country, and so on. So this first section of this passage, uh, verses 4 through 6, again say, O Israel, listen, Jehovah is our God, Jehovah alone. You must love him with all your heart, soul, and might, and you must think constantly about these commandments I am giving you today. This uh, passage, this section particularly the word hear or listen, is what is referred to as the Shema. And this word is really important. It's not like a passing, this word listen or hear. It's not like a passing thing like, hey, listen to this good idea. This is something you should pay attention to. It's like, listen! This is really important. Pay attention. This is monumental, paramount. 
This is the most significant thing you're going to hear out of this text. And we'll find if we read Deuteronomy that everything after this statement in this particular book is predicated based on and built on this section of passage. Listen, this is very important. This will be transformational to you. This will be monumental in your life. And that goes for everybody in this room. While it says, oh Israel, it's speaking to us. Nobody is recused from our role to impact our community and our families. And in fact, we look at our world today, and the normal system of engagement with our families is broken. In a time when this was written, at the height of some of the faithfulness of Israel, we would see families who would be responsible in engaging their children and each other in the ways of God. More than just moral values, but actually teaching the significance of the text. Engaging in good, the good word of God in the household in a disciplined way. But when we look out in our country today specifically, we see a broken system. Parents who don't believe in Christ, children who have abandoned the faith, grandparents who have taught irresponsible morals. And we still see highlights of good faith as well. Moms and dads who are disciplined and engaging with their children each day in the Word. Grandparents who know that while my child may not have picked up on what this faith is about, I can still impact the generation after them. And so it's a messy system. But we know something about our God. He makes a way for faith to be advanced and grown. And so as you listen to this message today, if you're sitting in a circumstance where you're looking around you, your household, your children, then this message is for you about how to engage your families in the ways of Christ. If you're a grandparent today and you're thinking to yourself, what can I do? Well, you have two generations to impact. If you're a single person today, if you're not married, you don't have children, and the church, unfortunately, doesn't do a good enough job of advancing singleness, it's a good gift from God. If you're single today, that's a blessing and it's rich. If you're a matchmaker in the church, make sure you mention that too next time you're putting a match together. (laughs) That it's okay. It's okay. But if you're that person and you're looking around you're thinking, how do I do something about this? Well, I can give you a list of names of students who need somebody in their life to engage with them in a faithful and disciplined way. And some of you have already taken on those roles. You've filled in the gap where someone else didn't do what they were supposed to do. And so you know what I'm talking about in that way. So whatever the case, we all have an opportunity here to engage in the good work of the kingdom. Now this phrase in this passage, one God, it denotes the full power of God being behind this idea. So what we're being told here is, listen, this is really important, one God is behind this. And when we say one God, we are talking about the Trinity. We're talking about the power of salvation, sovereignty, and sustainment. The salvation of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of God the Father, and the sustainment of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so what we know as we engage this text is if we do what it says, we've got the full power of God behind us, backing us in this endeavor to teach our children, teach our families, and change our culture. If we're faithful to our God. But if you notice, before we talk about families, before we talk about lying down and getting up, this passage talks about our engagement with this God. Step one in the process of impacting our world, changing the circumstances, at least in one life, if not a neighborhood, if not a church, if not a culture, if not a world, beyond that, begins with you. It begins with me. It begins with our disciplined, faithful, and obedient following of our God. 
Now, there's no silver bullet here. I'm not going to give you a 10-step process by which to have faith. It begins with salvation in Jesus Christ, and it's followed by discipleship. But the magic behind that, if you will, the magic bullet, is as simple as obedience. It begins with you being faithful. Seeking God in His Word, being available and ready to be in church. Go to Sunday school. For those of you who are not in attendance in Sunday school, it is a wealth of opportunity to grow in your depth of faith. That's not the only way, but it is one amazing way. Take advantage of it. Be here to hear the good word of God. But this, is, this ain't it. This ain't it. In the first century, in the Old Testament, the church was a supplement to the impact of discipleship in the individual's life. It is your advancement, your desire, your seeking of God in your own way that will grow you beyond what the church can accomplish. If your discipline in faith is an hour or two a week here, then I want you to know that God is seeking more of you than that. And in doing that, in seeking Him in that way, we can begin the process to change the reality of the world we see around us. There's a quote I want to share with you about the idea of what it looks like when somebody is under the impression they're seeking God in a disciplined and obedient way and how that contrast can be noted. It says, this is from William Barclay, It is possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple, to be a camp follower without being a soldier to the king, to be a hanger-on in some great work without pulling one's weight. Once someone was talking to a great scholar about a younger man, and he said, so-and-so tells me that he was one of your students. The teacher answered, he may have attended my lectures, but he was not one of my students. There is a world of difference between attending lectures and being a student. It is one of the supreme handicaps of the church that in the church... There are so many distant followers of Jesus and so few real disciples. That's a challenging statement. And as you reflect on the reality of whatever your circumstance has been in the growth of your own faith, as I started this message and as I mentioned again, my desire today is not a matter strictly of conviction. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. But it is to say, if you haven't taken hold of your own faith, your own discipline, if your faith has looked like filling in a couple of slots on a schedule and you think you've met an end, if your faith has been in fits and starts and you've not been obedient in the ways you want to be, if you have goals for the new year that's coming up and you had those last year and you didn't meet them, listen, our God is about mercy and redemption and revival. He's about bringing us from where we are to somewhere else. And his plan and intention is not for us to just live and waller in our shortcomings, but it's to extend grace and mercy to us and extend a hand for us to take hold of in the growth and development of our own faith. When we reflect on this passage about God being one and his supreme power being behind us, and maybe you've lived a life handicapped because you're not taking advantage of that in your own discipline, your own desire, your own devotion, I want you to know a good message today. You can begin now. God is not done with you and the work that he can accomplish in your life, through you, through the people you contact in this church, through the people in your workplace, and through your families. If if your life looks like a mess and there's a long history of poor choices behind you, good news today. Our God is merciful. And he desires to use you in an amazing, impactful way. If right now, in this moment, you're reflecting on the poor decisions you've made or the sin that is a part of your life as I speak, We are in good order because our God sent his son to die on a cross for our sin to redeem us, but not strictly in salvation, 
also in discipleship. He desires to teach you and to grow you beyond where you are now. And that includes everybody in this room, the oldest and the youngest. God isn't done growing you. You haven't, meet, you haven't met the benchmark of growth. There is no distinction between us here. You may be more mature in your faith than I am, but we're all just called to be obedient. We're all just called to seek a closer walk with our Lord. This is what is being laid at our feet today. An opportunity and a good message that says, whatever it looks like before now, we can start doing this right today. That's what God is extending to us in this good word. And so if your life looks like this Barclay quote, you're halfway, there's going to be an opportunity for you to make a commitment to be full on in your faith. And we can talk about the specifics of what that looks like, but ultimately it's about obedience and commitment, doing the stuff you know you should have done already, but not living in some mire of guilt, rather saying, I'm ready to do this right now. And I know that along the journey I'm going to make mistakes, but my God is faithful to forgive me, to redeem me. Continuing on with this passage, we see in verse 7, it says, You must teach them to your children and talk about them when you are at home or out for a walk at bedtime and the first thing in the morning, them being these principles of the faith. Now again, when we talk about children here, if you're a parent of an adult child, they're still your child. And so sometimes we have this idea that, you know, little Timmy is going out and he's 18 now and he's living his life and that's all well and good and I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to get in the middle of his life and tell him this and that. No. Your responsibility to disciple, if your name's Timmy, by the way, that wasn't directed at you, anybody. But you're, you're, um, I have to choose interesting names when I'm teaching the, the youth as an example because I try to find one that's not their name, but sometimes I don't do it. But anyway, whatever the case. Your responsibility as a parent of an adult child doesn't end because they're an adult. You're still supposed to be discipling them, taking the opportunities to lead them and teach them. When the window opens, you take it. When the conversation gets in that area, you take it. And if, again, you're a grandparent today and your child isn't a Christian, but your grandchildren can be impacted by you, then that's your avenue. If you're a child today and your mom and dad are not believers, that's your avenue. So wherever you look at in your church, if you're a single today, again, there are people all over this church who need your investment. All over this community who need your investment. And so no one is not in this grouping. Remember that. And identify today as you're listening to this message who in your life you need to be impacting with the gospel. Who in your life needs salvation. Who in your life needs discipleship. Who are those people to you? It's been said by social scientists that the generation that I'm a part of was educated by our family and parents and moral values. That they try to instill in us right and wrong. That this is well to do and this is not. That this is good and this isn't. That the way that we have been, have been educated is by saying, these values are good and these aren't. Now, that may be the case in your household or maybe not, just a general statement from social scientists, whatever that means. But if that's true, and we now see people from my generation beginning to take hold of leadership in various capacities in our nation, serving alongside those before us and those who are beginning to come after, we see some of the results of that type of spiritual discipline as a little shaky. Because every day we see moral values shifting. What is said is right isn't right anymore, and what's wrong is now right again. 
We see a change and a manipulation of values. And part of the reason that is the case, as indicated in this passage, is because those values must be grounded in the text. They must be grounded in the faith. They must be grounded, first and foremost, in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's not as simple as saying, my child is saved, my adult child is saved, my grandchildren are saved, my parents are saved, I'm just going to teach them right and wrong. But it must be that as we develop conversations in our household, as we sit with our children and educate them in the ways of the Lord, that we're always driving these back to the Word of God. Remember, step one is to know Him well yourself. And then begin to impact your community and your children. And that means we must be teaching values that are more than this is right and this is wrong. But we must be teaching values that say the good Word of God tells us this is right. That Jesus Christ who died on a cross for you wants you to know that this is how he desires for you to live. Those conversations must permeate our households, must be in those phone calls, must take place in our church building. We must be deriving everything we understand about value and living from the Bible and then speaking that using the language of the text. Because moral values are shaky ground, as we see in the culture and the circumstances that are around us. But the good value of the text, the good value of the Word of God is not. It is a solid ground on which to build a life that will have meaning and value well beyond the human existence on earth here. All life must be based off of the values of the text and more than just saying this is right and wrong. So, as your children come home, or you speak to your adult children on a phone or your grandchildren, that person in the church you know needs someone to disciple them, that aunt or uncle, niece or nephew, they have questions about life and the challenges they're facing. This text is telling us that how we engage with them in a way that's meaningful beyond just these are moral values is that we must teach them to our children and talk about them when they're at home or out for a walk, at bedtime, first thing in the morning. That pretty much makes up a day. As we come home and say our work was challenging, if your spouse comes home and says, I had a hard day at work, we've got to look at that through the good word of God. Now, maybe not in the immediate moment. They might need to chill out a little bit. But whatever the case, we must engage it through the text. When you're sitting down with your children and you're saying, hey, you shouldn't have done that thing on the playground today. Let's look at it through the lens of the gospel. That's the beginning and lasting message of Deuteronomy 6 and the way by which our culture is impacted beyond moral value. Cultural Christianity is not going to change people and it's not going to change a community or a world. But a life and faith built into the word of God will. So, these are good ideals today. Ideals about how we need to be obedient in our own faith. We need to impact our families, our community, not just our small children, but the whole, the whole bag, everybody. And you hopefully are identifying people you need to be engaging with in your own household. If you're a parent today and you've got a little time left with a child in your household, don't miss that window. Begin to do the things you should have been doing before. Don't live in guilt. Don't live in sin. Don't live in mire of heartache, but do something that is impactful. If you're beginning a journey with a child, begin to set habits that look like this. If you've got a contact with your adult children or you're a grandparent who has a contact with children, begin to make those changes in how you engage and speak about the Word of God. 
But we have a good message here in the final section of our passage. Tie them, this is 8 and 9, tie them on your finger, wear them on your forehead, and write them on the doorsteps of your house. Now, this is not a step-by-step process. So if you're listening today and you're like, okay, I'll get my faith in order, that'll take about six months or whatever, and then I'll get my children's faith in order, and that'll take six months, and everything will be square. That's not what this message is saying. As we go on this journey of life together and we invest in our own faith, that's going to pour into the lives around us. If you want to know the best, if you don't want a 10-step program, and you just want one step, do this. Get disciplined in your faith. And that will pour out of you and into your family. That will pour out of you into your unsaved family in all capacities, parents, children, whatever. It will pour out of you into your workplace. It will pour out of you into the people in this church. Seek God. Faithfully. Do the hard thing that you've had such a hard time doing. And you're not alone. Because again, we have a God who says, Listen! This is important! And I'm with you! The full power of the God is behind you! The Trinity is walking with you in this journey! I'm with you! There's some sect of Judaism today where they take little parts of uh, the Old Testament. They roll them up in little, like, rolls, and they put them in a little box, and then they strap it to their head, and they wear it on a little box on their head. It's kind of interesting, right? A little different. Y'all can give that a shot. I won't be doing it, but you can (laughs) give it a shot if you want to. And the reason they do that is because they want that stuff so close to them. They want God's Word right there accessible to them. Now, the Word tells us to hide it in our heart, and that's an excellent method. But this is something that those people have, for whatever reason, decided is a good way. And that's an ancient practice. In this passage, we're told to put it on our, our door frame. Archaeology shows us that in the time that this uh, particular passage was written, we have all kinds of indications that people were taking the Torah or the law and putting it all over their house. Plates and ceramics everywhere. They had it all over the place. You probably have you know, a little pillow in your house, crocheted you know, with something, or maybe a painting. Same idea, generally speaking. That's what they were doing too. Because they wanted that stuff right there as a reference that they could engage with. We do the same things, not only in our household. We might have a necklace with a cross or something else. Now, again, we know the value of that is not found in the item itself. If it has no meaning and power behind it, then it's not worth anything. But we want those things nearby as a reminder, as a reference, to keep them on our heart and on our mind. Because this faith was never meant to be in fits and starts. If we examine the original language of 6, 4 through 9 in Deuteronomy, we find this idea being presented, that this is a living, breathing, in and out, day-by-day, moment-by-moment faith. For these people and for us, our call is not to relegate our faith or have our faith housed in this hour or the hour before in Sunday school, or Wednesday night for 45 minutes, or our devotional for 10 minutes a day. It was meant to be conversational. We were supposed to be in our households talking about the gospel in reference to everything, not just when the moments were tragic. You've lost someone in your life, let's talk about Christ. you face some hardship, let's talk about Christ. But no, how is your day? What does it look like through the lens of the text? How is your life? What does it look like through the lens of the text? You had a breakup, what's that look like? You had a makeup, what's that look like? You're having children come. What does that look like in the Bible? How can we examine the text? As we're making decisions about how we live, who we marry, and how many children we have, and what our career is going to be, and what our retirement is going to look like, those things are not divorced from the Scripture. God has a plan and a message in those things as well. 
And in order to know that plan, know that message, again, we've got to be intimate with our God. We've got to educate our families. And we've got to know that this faith was meant to be living and breathing throughout our day in our household. You're going to go to lunch today, probably, or you're going to go home. And God is good, God is great is an excellent prayer, as long as there's meaning behind it. But that shouldn't be the only measure of faithful conversation we have this day. When we get, get up, go to bed, in the house, out of the house. Those aren't my words. They're in that passage. It's supposed to be a living and breathing and alive faith that rolls off of our tongue because the scripture tells us that what's in our heart comes out of our mouth. We must examine life through more than just moral values. Not just bad stuff, also good stuff. We must know his word, know it well, and engage it in that way. And so our church, this message, I don't see you waving your hand, Bobby, so i still got a few minutes. This church, as a, as a family, we have intentions as an organization in the next year or so to begin to examine how we're educating our children. Uh, Charlie, Monica, and I have come together to begin to think through some of the ways that we can do a better job of equipping our children in discipleship and also equipping our families in how to disciple. Because as I speak, some of you think this is a great idea. You're like, hey, I should take advantage of that opportunity. But you feel inadequate. Maybe you think, I don't know enough. Or no one ever discipled me or taught me about the faith. Maybe you feel unequipped because you think, I don't have an ability or a capacity to figure out how to talk about Jesus in every aspect of life, live Jesus in every aspect of life. And so we as a church want to do a better job of equipping. In my eight and a half years as your youth director and now associate pastor, I've probably not done as good of a job about that as I should have. And I want you to know that I'm committed to make an intentional effort to do a better job of complementing the good work of our families in the household. Because the church, again, is a supplement to the faith. That we are not the show. Your own seeking of the Lord is. We're here to help in that process and growth. We're not here to be the educators of your children in the gospel. We're here to assist in that process, you being the center point. And we want to help you to do that. And so look out for those opportunities. You'll, you'll see things come in the next year that'll be ways by which you can know better how to disciple your families, and we want to extend that effort. So look out for those things as they come. That's a way by which you can engage with that. Two, make a note of how to, how to engage. So if you're listening to me and you're like, hey, I want, to, I want to do this stuff. I want to get in there, get serious about my faith, and get serious with my family. Then talk about that with your family. How can we do a better job here? Does it look like a devotional? Does it look like when we're in the car on the way to the practice, we hear that Christian song come on, we maybe switch the radio station, that might be step one. We hear that Christian song come on and we think, hey, let's talk about this theologically. Let's figure out what does this mean for my kid, for me? Maybe it's a conversation with a leader in our church. So if you're desiring to think to yourself, how can I administer these changes in our life? We're here to help you with that. I don't know the makeup of your whole life, but I know that the scripture's true. And I know that the calling is real. And so getting down, getting up, going out, going in, whatever that looks like in your life, figure out how to administer gospel conversations in your household, with your family, with your adult children on the phone. How can I infuse this with the text? How can this be a living faith beyond that hour and a half on a Sunday morning? The cost is great if we don't make commitment. We see it today in our own culture, and we see the outcome of this particular passage. You see, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, we see a calling of this community. 
They're fresh. It's a new generation. This word Deuteronomy means second law because God was recommitting himself to these people and desiring them for, for a recommitment of their life to him. And so he's starting fresh with them. He's got this command. This is the way. Listen! This is the way to do it. If you do this stuff, it's all going to be okay. We see in short order in Joshua chapter 1, there's a reminder. We go a little further with this generation. There's a reminder to them again to stay faithful and obedient. By Joshua 24, we see a community distracted. Distracted with work. Distracted with blessings. Distracted with family. Some of you may be in that situation today. You're distracted with your responsibilities. And so God reminds them again in Joshua 24. He says, hey, this is serious, okay? We've been doing this okay for a while. Your faith is good, but I want it to be great. Because if you do that, then there's going to be great blessing for you and your community and family. So by Joshua 24, they're distracted, but God's, God's here again. He's still faithful, still seeking them. And by Judges 2.10, we see the result of them not heeding that warning. And it says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up, the next generation... And you know what? They knew neither the Lord or what he had done for Israel. And that may be some of the time that we live in now. And that may be some of the results of the culture we see around us. The cost is high if we don't respond as a family, as individuals. But the blessing is great. Let's stick, let's stick with Deuteronomy 6 and try to avoid Joshua, or excuse me, Judges 2. And if you want to accomplish that, then it's about your obedience and faithfulness and dispensing that to your families. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the power of your word. Not my word, not these quotes, but the power of that text. This living word. God, I pray as we reflect on and think about what it means for our own faith to be disciplined as we look at our culture and we see the challenges let us not fuss god embolden us to say i'm going to do something significant about my own pursuit embolden me god in that way and lord as we look at our family around us help us to recognize people who are in need of your good word of your teaching create those windows of conversation as as we listen to this message and we think to ourselves Can I do that in my family? Help those windows to be open, doors to be open, and us see the means by which you're doing your powerful work to create opportunities for us to spread your message. God, and ultimately help us to know that this is done by the full power of God behind us and that it's a matter of all day, every day. On our doorposts, in the car ride, at the meal, for the 10 minutes we have to have a conversation. Help us to stop talking about mindless chatter, as the scripture says. Help us to start talking about the realities of everyday life through the lens of your text. Help me to do that, God. God, I pray for our church in that way. That each individual here who is willing to hear a message, that you equip them to be able to achieve your goodwill in this way. Amen. This morning... I am not, um, we're going to sing a song, but I'm not going to extend an invitation.